So Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 24, hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, there was dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last day shall it be, declares the Lord, declares God. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We prayed for a missionary couple today, and we had the privilege of being a missionary family, and sometimes people ask, well, how do you get to be a missionary? What are the steps? Well, with our particular mission agency, it takes a while. It takes a long time. There is a great deal of waiting to be a missionary. First of all, you need to be recommended by your home church, your home elders. Then you need to apply to the mission agency. And then you need to have that application approved. And then there's a readiness evaluation weekend. And then if you pass that, there's psychological testing as well. And then there has to be an invitation from the field, some mission field, a team has to want you. 
Then there's an interview with the committee, and if you pass that, then there's orientation, and then there is cross-cultural training, and there is also fundraising, and then there is finally language school. And after all that, then you get to go to the mission field and be a missionary. Now, Jesus had already trained his missionaries. That's what apostle means, a sent one, someone who is sent on a mission. And he had already trained his missionaries, his apostles, for three years. And they had tested by doing some ministry under his supervision. And they were ready, almost, to go out on their own. But there was one more crucial thing that they needed. And they dare not go before they had this. And that's why we read last week that Jesus, before He ascended, instead of sending them out immediately, He said, wait. Wait in Jerusalem until you have the promise from the Father. And that's what we have here. The promise from the Father, that one last element that they needed before going out as apostles and missionaries. But they didn't have to wait long. They waited maybe about a week after Jesus ascended before they received this gift. Now, what we have in the text that we read, an incomplete text, but we read the first part with the event in verses 1 to 4, and then we had the reactions in verses 5 to 13, And then we had the explanation, and that's where we cut it off about halfway through, the explanation of Peter in verses 14 to 24. So the event itself, the event itself, Luke began to describe it, and he described this in something of an unusual way. In verse 1, it says here, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now he used some unusual language here, because what he said was this, when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled, which is an unusual way of talking about uh, a day's arriving, but it looks like he's gesturing at the fact that not only had the day arrived, but the idea, the day of Pentecost from the Old Testament, had reached its fulfillment. And we're going to see that fulfillment today. Now, what is the day of Pentecost? Pentecost was the name that was used in the days of Jesus to describe the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Harvest. And it took place 50 50 days after Passover. And that's where the word Pentecost, you think of our Pentagon, a five-sided figure, this is referring to the 50 days. It was a one-day feast. You can find it mentioned in Exodus 23.16, in Leviticus 23.15-21, and also Deuteronomy 16, 9-12. And it says here that on that day of Pentecost, it says when all together, they were all together in one place. And if we go back to chapter 1, we find that the all refer to the 120. At the end of Jesus, three years of ministry, He had the twelve disciples Well, minus one, plus one. So they're twelve again. We skipped over that story. The replacement for Judas. But he had the twelve disciples, but he also had about ten times more than that in terms of followers. And they were gathered. And these were gathered in one place. And then all of a sudden, on this day of Pentecost, a sound like a mighty wind, 
and tongue-shaped objects like fire. He's using analogies here to try to describe this experience. So, sound like a mighty rushing wind and tongue-shaped objects like fire. The sound filled the place where they were and the tongue-shaped objects like fire descended upon each of the disciples. And it says here, that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house, and they were where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now if we go back to chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus had said to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me, upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is that for which they were waiting. And Jesus said, when this happens, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now the manifestation, in addition to the mighty rushing wind and to the these tongue-like objects that descended on them, the manifestation of the Spirit's power was that they began to speak in other languages. They began to speak in other languages. It says, speak in other tongues. We use that expression in English as well to refer to languages. We refer to, my mother tongue is English. And uh, here it's speaking of languages. And it says that the Spirit gave them Utterance. Gave them utterance. That's a verb that we'll find again in verse 14, although it's not translated that way in this version. It says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. It says that he uttered. And oftentimes that verb is referring to speech that is under the impulse of the Holy Spirit. And so here they are uttering under the impulse of the Spirit, and their uttering, their speaking, is in other languages. Now, this event is not called, in this chapter, it's not called being baptized by the Holy Spirit. But we should understand that that's what's happening here. Because if you go back to chapter 1, where Jesus says, uh, while He was staying with them, verse 4, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So we should understand what happened here was that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus was baptizing them. He who had been baptized at his water baptism with the Holy Spirit, now he was baptizing his people with the Holy Spirit. Now, this means that this was a one-time act of the risen and ascended Jesus. And we should classify this along with the other one-time acts of Jesus, such as His incarnation. How many times did Jesus become, the Son of God become a man? Once. Uh, with his, his life, He lived as a man once. His death, how many times did He die? Once. How many times was He risen from the dead? Once. How many times did He ascend into heaven? Once. How many times did He give His Spirit to the church? Once. And this is what the church has recognized, and that's why 
churches that follow the Christian calendar, they have Pentecost along with these other events. And they celebrate the the Incarnation, and they celebrate, as we do too, but there are churches that do this uh, by a calendar. They celebrate the, the, uh, the, the birth of Christ. They celebrate the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and Pentecost. Because this was a definitive one-time event where the risen, ascended Jesus poured out His Spirit, as Peter will explain, on His church. Now, this phenomenon of speaking in other languages, it's not clear that this particular phenomenon happened ever again in the New Testament. Because what we'll see here is that they were speaking known languages. They were speaking known languages. And we'll see that the people heard those known languages and reacted to those known languages as their own languages, as their various local dialects. And that's what they refer to them as their dialects. Now, this happens twice more in Acts of the Apostles. In Acts chapter 10 and in Acts chapter 19. But the language is a little bit different. Here it says they spoke in other languages. And then in the the other two instances where this happens, it says that they spoke in languages. Now, it's not clear what those languages were. but But the languages used is a little different to describe the experience. And then we find... an apparently related phenomenon happening in the church in Corinth. And that is, is also where this phenomenon or related phenomenon is mentioned. And it is called speaking in languages. We usually say speaking in tongues because that's the literal description here. Speaking in languages. But there it's something different because they're not known languages. They're unknown languages, and Paul is very clear that for those to be spoken in public, there has to be an interpreter. But the point here is that there didn't have to be an interpreter. That they were speaking in languages that the people understood. And it's not clear, at least to me and to the scholars that I've read, exactly how these phenomena are related because they go under either the same description or a related description. Uh, this It's described as speaking in other languages, and then in the other instances it's described as speaking in languages. So it may be that in the two Acts uh, occasions after this, that they were speaking in unknown languages. Or it may be that they were doing the exact same thing here, that they were speaking in known languages. And by the way, uh, if there's anybody... If there's anybody who would love to have this gift of being able to speak in other languages and make ourselves known to other people that we have not studied, it would be missionaries. Because all of us missionaries have struggled, struggled to learn other languages. And if you have ever learned a language, another language, you know how very difficult it is if you didn't learn it as a young person. But we don't see evidence of this in the rest of the New Testament. Paul had trouble in one place, and he ended up getting stoned because he didn't understand the local language. So we, we, don't, we don't have evidence that this ability to speak languages that you haven't studied uh, occurs again. So it may be that what we have here is, a, is a, a unique experience that was signaling that there was a unique event happening here. And then we'll leave it to other times to try to figure out how the other events that are, but are called by either the same or similar names relate to this one.
But what we see here, what is clear, um, is uh, what's also not clear. There's some things that Luke leaves out here. And that is how this private event in a house, in a room, became public. So we, we need to assume that, that they went outside or that the noise was so great that people gathered around the house or, or, or that they began in the temple perhaps. Some people think that they began in a room in the temple, but somehow this private event became public. And a multitude, a multitude of Jews heard this noise. In verse 5, it says, Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Now we can understand that Luke is using some exaggeration here because neither he nor anyone else at the time knew all the nations under heaven, but, but we will see an impressive list here. And it was functionally the known world that was there present. And he will give this list. And if let's, let's look at that list in verses 9 to 11. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, and Arabians. And it is kind of a scattered list. And I have not seen any convincing explanation for the order of this list. It may be that Luke was just gushing out names of different places, even as as we would. If I were to say to you, name ten nations in the world, well, you would probably just start naming, you'd say, China and Portugal and Brazil and the United States, and there would be no certain order. And it may be that, that Luke was simply just gushing out with a list of names of those who were there. But we do see that there is quite a variety, because he begins by naming those who were even farther east than the eastern extensus of the Roman Empire. And then he moves into the Middle East, and he mentions some there, some there, and then he goes over to Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey, and then he goes down into Africa and into the Mediterranean, and then he goes all the way to Rome, which is his end game, by the way. That's where this whole this this account is going. This this ends in Rome, and he that was the ends of the earth, basically, if you were standing in Jerusalem. And uh, although they knew of places beyond that, but, but he, he mentions all of these places and he says these were present that day, but these were Jews or proselytes. That is, they were adherents to Judaism and they were there that day. And they would all have known either Aramaic or Greek. And many of them would have known both. And so that's a, that's a, a wonderful situation because you wouldn't need translators if you wanted to preach in Jerusalem, you wouldn't need to study other languages. You would need to know Aramaic or Greek and maybe have a translator going into the other one. But it makes for a very a very nice communication situation. And so this sign was not strictly necessary for communication purposes. Why was it necessary? It was necessary to mark off that something was happening here extraordinary. And that's the impact that it had. And understandably, the crowd was... Listen to the, listen to the words to describe the crowd's response. It says that they were bewildered, they were amazed, they were astonished, and they were perplexed. All of those. And if you've ever been in another country and you don't know the language of that country, 
and you are walking along or you're on the bus or you're somewhere in the restaurant or something and all of a sudden you hear your own language. Your ears perk up because it jumps out at you and you understand it. And that was the experience here. Even though they understood Aramaic and or Greek, all of a sudden they heard their language from Crete or from Phrygia or from Rome or from Cappadocia or from Pontus. And they began to hear these these local languages being spoken and their ears perked up. And they heard them and they heard that they were speaking the great deeds of God. They were declaring God's glory. And so, naturally, they wanted to know what it meant. And in verse 12, they said to one another, What does this mean? There were some that had a suggestion about what it meant. And it was this. They are filled with new wine. Now, new wine is sweeter, and so you can get drunk more easily because it's sweet, and you can drink more than you meant to. And they said, they're drunk. Now, that was not a crazy idea, because if you would just stand back and listen to the noise of these people speaking loudly in all these different languages, it would sound, it would sound raucous. It would sound like something was, somebody was not quite in their right senses. And that, that's what they described. They said, oh, they're just drunk. Now, I have, I have not tried, and it, it would not be a biblical thing to do, but I have not tried to see if, if drinking wine can help me learn foreign languages. But, but, but I, I don't know anybody that has been able to improve or perfect other languages by drinking alcohol. And so, so it really, it, it may have described their, the, the oral impact on their, their ears, but it really was not a good explanation for what was happening. And then Peter. Peter, in a good-natured way, he got up and he said, he didn't look at his watch because he wouldn't have had a watch, but he said, it's really too early for that. Because they wouldn't have even had breakfast yet. He said, it's really too early for that. Because people didn't start eating or drinking yet. But I want you to notice something in verse 14 that is astounding. And it's this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and uttered. That's amazing. This is Peter. These are the eleven. These are the same ones who not long ago had abandoned Jesus. This is Peter. The same Peter who said, no, I, 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 I don't know him. Three times. I, I don't know the man. And this is, this is Peter and some of the same ones who, not many days ago, we learned that they went back fishing because they were waiting for something to happen. This is, this is Peter, folks. These, these are the eleven. And what do they do? They're standing in Jerusalem where their master had just been crucified. And they stood up in front of a multitude of thousands of people and uttered. What happened? Well, the explanation is, they had the Spirit. They'd been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They'd been filled by the Holy Spirit. And we see here a new Peter. We see here a new eleven. They have been transformed. And as impressive, as impressive 
as is this phenomenon of speaking in other language, this is more impressive still to have men transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter lifted up his voice and he uttered under the impulse of the Holy Spirit and he said, these aren't drunk. He said, but I want to tell you, I'm going to give you the explanation for what is happening here. And that is what Joel, the prophet Joel, promised. It's happened, folks. It's happened today. And you have witnessed it. Now, we go back to Joel, and Peter quotes Joel. He quotes him at length here in verses 17 to 21. And he quoted him from what's called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation, the standard Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it was the popular version of the Bible for those who spoke Greek, which was basically most of the the empire. And just like when we quote the Bible, we quote the Bible in our favorite English version. And he was quoting the Bible in his favorite version, the Greek. And of course, that would have been what many of the people would understand as well. But it's interesting that he changed some things. He altered a few words, and by so doing, he's interpreting for us the meaning of what's happening here in Joel. In verse 17, it says here, And in the last days, this is what Joel said, And in the last days it shall be God declares. But that's not what Joel said. If you go back and look at the quotation from Joel, Joel said this, vaguely, he said, Afterwards, afterwards, this is what's going to happen. And then when Peter got up to quote Joel and refer to Joel, he interpreted that afterwards as, in the last days. And this is significant, because what Peter is doing here is he is saying to the crowd, you who have waited so long for this event to come, it has come, and this event marks out the beginning of the last days. The last days have started. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come. And when people ask me, do you believe that we're in the last days? I always say, yes. Yes, we're in the last days. Because the clock has started. The, the, the sign, the event that marks out the beginning of the last days has already occurred definitively. And we are in those last days. And what would happen in those last days, according to Joel? It says, And in the last days, in Joel's language, And afterwards it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on My male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out My Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, that's what Joel said would happen And Peter said, that's what just happened here today. Now we need to see that this is a double contrast with what would happen in the Old Testament times with regard to the Holy Spirit. 
And that is that in the Old Testament, the Spirit's movement is, is even more mysterious because it is occasional. It is apparently temporary. And it is selective. It is on certain men, such as elders and judges and kings and prophets. And it was often temporary in their own lives. The Spirit would come upon them for a certain activity and then there was no more evidence of uh, the Spirit on that person in their behavior or in their activities or kind of a come and go sort of thing. Very mysterious. And it was always on these important men in Israel. And now, what's he saying? Joel is saying, but afterwards, I will not just give occasionally, sporadically, I will pour out. This is going to be abundant giving of the Spirit. This is pouring out of the Spirit. And not only on this certain group of select men, but notice here, it says, I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. That means all kinds of flesh, all kinds of people. Not only your sons, but your daughters as well. Not just men, but women as well. And not just young men, or not just old men, but both. Young men shall see visions. Old men will dream dreams. And not just on the wealthy, not just on the powerful. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. So, no longer poured out in measure, trickled out as you were, but poured out abundantly. And not only on certain ones, but on all kinds of people, all of God's people. And the result is, they will prophesy. Look at verse 17. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Verse 18. And they shall prophesy. This is the answer to Moses' prayer back in Numbers chapter 11. The burden was too great for Moses. There were 70 elders. And God took from the the spirit that was on Moses and gave that spirit to the 70 elders But only 68 of them gathered. If you go back and look at Numbers chapter 11, we read it earlier in the service. Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 to 29. And two of them were not at the tent of meeting when the Spirit was given them. And all 70 of them prophesied. 68 of them out at the tent of meeting. Two of them still in the camp. And, and, and there were people that were concerned. A young man ran, ran and said, Moses, Moses, two of them are in the camp and they're prophesying in the camp. And Joshua said, Moses, shut them down. This is highly irregular. They're supposed to be out here at the tent of meeting. They're prophesying in the camp. And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? And his prayer was this, Oh, that God would give His Spirit to all of His people, and that all of His people would be prophets. And then Joel, hundreds of years later, says that's what's going to happen. God's going to pour out His Spirit on all His people. And all of them, all of them, will prophesy. Peter says, that's what just happened. That's what you just witnessed. And then... He talked about some cosmic events. Verse 19, 
I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now it looks like these have not yet happened. There were some that were sort of similar to this when Jesus was crucified, but it looks like, according to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 24, and what Revelation 6.12 say, they, they refer to this, and they say that these cosmic signs will happen not at the beginning of the last days, but at the end of the last days, when the curtain is drawn and when all things are made new, when Jesus comes back. And then he begins his appeal by quoting, still, by quoting from Joel, verse 21, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, if you go back to Joel and look at that in the Hebrew, and if you, you can even do this in your English translations, because that word Lord is all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. And the convention in many of our English versions is when the name Yahweh, the personal name of God, appears, it is in all capital letters. And so Joel is saying, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, will be saved. And then Peter goes on and tells us who that Lord is. And this is remarkable. Verse 22 Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Did you, did you catch the transition there? Everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. And he's telling us who the Lord is, the one on whom we have to call. Jesus a Of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now there's a remarkable verse here. All of them are remarkable, of course, but verse 23, before we get to back to the the, the appeal to the the crowd here and to us, there is this debate about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and it always comes up. But it's a debate that never concerned the preachers of the Bible. They just preached both of them. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. Definite. Not to be changed. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, the the sovereign plan of God? Absolutely. Brought about by the, the agency of humans who are responsible for their actions? Absolutely. That's what the Bible does. It affirms both and leaves it there. Now, let's look at this declaration about Jesus because this becomes something of a a model. And if you go through Acts and you hear the apostolic preaching, you will find that they kept hitting the same notes. And if we are going to learn to present the gospel to others, we need to hit these same notes. 
These notes are these. There is a sovereign God, and you have sinned against Him. God, rather, Jesus died, and here He's saying, you killed Him. Jesus died, and God raised Him. So, these are points that are they're almost always there when we hear the apostles preaching. And then they often add to that, He ascended, and He will come to judge as well. But, but let's look at this outline. Let's learn this outline, folks. Because this is not a complicated outline to talk with others about. There is a God who is sovereign and holy. You have sinned against Him. God has sent His Son to take away your sin, and that's what happens. happened when He died. And God raised Him from the dead. So, now, what's your response? Now, we, we cut the sermon off, and we don't get to the response, but, but after preaching this, Peter then appealed to them. He hints at the response here. He says, call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. If you call on the name of Jesus, you will be saved. And the later he describes it as repentance and as faith, followed by baptism. And so, the gospel. What is it? There is a God. You've sinned against Him. Jesus died. God raised Him. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If, my friends, you have not called on the name of the Lord in order to be saved, I urge you, just as Peter is urging us today, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Now, Peter went on and he did what the apostles often did. He quoted more scripture to demonstrate that this was true from the Old Testament because he was preaching to Jews. And then... He winds up his sermon, and 3,000 people, 3,000 people responded. And they were baptized into the church that day with water. And the church grew from 120 to 3,120. That's the most remarkable church growth, perhaps, that's ever happened on any day, ever. And that's what happened on Pentecost. Now, it says here that all believers, all believers have the Spirit to prophesy. And now we need to ask ourselves the question, what does that mean to prophesy? Well, let's look at what they were doing here. They were declaring the great deeds of God. And then Peter, when he got his chance to stand up and prophesy, he was declaring the great deeds of God that he accomplished through Jesus. That's the basis of prophecy here. Now, it may include more than that, but that is the essence of prophecy. That is declaring the great deeds of God specifically through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 11. It says, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What are those mighty works of God? Peter stands up and says, you killed Jesus, God raised Him from the dead. He saves all who call upon Him. That's the essence of prophecy. And since Pentecost, all believers are empowered to do this. In other words, you do not have to wait any longer to prophesy. 
the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, and if you are a believer in Him, you have access to that same Spirit. And so, you can be filled with the Spirit, and you can prophesy as well. Well, what should you say? You can say the same thing that they said. There's a God. You've sinned against Him. He died for sinners, but God raised Him from the dead. That's the spirit of prophecy. You have everything you need to go out and prophesy. Now, this is an intimidating thing sometimes, isn't it? It probably was very intimidating for Peter, but he did it anyway. I don't know if he was trembling when he did it. It doesn't seem that he was. But he was preaching to those to whom he said, You just killed my Lord. You're responsible for doing this. And he stood up and spoke to them. He might have been afraid. The others of the eleven might have been afraid. The others of the 120 might have been afraid. But in, in spite of that, they spoke. Why? Because they had the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are old enough to have driven cars without power brakes or power steering. You remember that? Yeah, some of us. Okay. I've driven that. Um, And power brakes are an amazing thing. You remember driving without power brakes. The pressure to stop the car, it it came from your foot. And it went through the cables and so on, and it applied the the pads to the the brakes or to the discs. But, But you had to apply all the pressure. The power was yours. And it was hard to make that car stop. Hard to make it steer. It wasn't that hard to make it go because you understood that the accelerator, the way it functioned is, you just had to press it a little bit to access the power that's in the engine. So you get the idea that the power is not yours. When you get up to 60 or whatever, you're not saying, wow, look how strong I am. Did you see that right foot? That was amazing. What are you saying? Wow, this car went 0 to 60 very fast. This must have a powerful engine. But you had to touch the pedal for the power to be released. The power wasn't yours to stop, to start, to steer. The the power was the engine's. But you had to do something to access that power. And that's how it works here. The power doesn't come apart from doing something. And so we have the power to prophesy How do we access the power to prophesy? By prophesying. You don't have to wait any longer. Hit the gas pedal and be amazed what happens. Screw up your courage in whatever situation you find yourself and just speak and you will find that the power surge will come. Why? Because some 2,000 years ago, the ascended Jesus, who had been born, who had lived, who had died, who had been raised from the dead, who ascended into heaven, He poured out His Spirit on all His people so that we could declare His mighty works to a world that needs to call upon Him and so be saved. Let's pray. God, I pray, I pray for all who are hearing this message and any biblical message this morning 
that if they have not yet called on the name of Jesus to be saved, that you would enable them to call on Jesus today and be saved. They would recognize you, the sovereign God, recognize their sin, recognize Jesus' death for sinners, and call upon the name of the the risen Jesus, and so be saved. And for all of us who have called on the name of the Lord, who have believed on Jesus and been sealed with the Holy Spirit, poured out at Pentecost, O God, I pray that You would enable us to access that power day by day. You've made us all prophets. O God, enable us to hit the gas pedal, to, to, to access the power so that the Word might go forth, prophecy might go forth, and that many others would hear and be able to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we thank You for the Spirit, O God. Fill us daily. Fill us constantly. We need Your Spirit, O God. And use us to prophesy Your Word to the ends of the earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.